I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. Producers credits for this edition of Parallax Views. Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Galen, Brian, The War Nerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Justin, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Fabian, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, and The Mayor, Framework, M-E-E-R, Framework. If you'd like your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining those listeners at the $10 tier or above at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the show, we have a triple feature. Later on, we'll be hearing from Daniel Bessner of the American Prestige podcast to discuss U.S. foreign policy in light of the invasion of Ukraine by Vladimir Putin's Russia. Additionally, we'll be speaking with Dr. Christian Coates Ulrichsen, about what said invasion means for states in the Persian Gulf. But first, Dr. William Leogrande of American University in Washington, D.C. joins us to discuss his fascinating article for the Quincy Institute's Responsible Statecraft publication entitled, Why Cuba Has Threaded the Russia Needle for 60 Years which gets into the historical background of the relationship between Cuba and Russia over the decades, and Cuba's response to the Ukraine crisis. I hope that you'll find the following conversation as fascinating and informative as I did, and with that being said, let's get right to it with Dr. William Leogrande on Cuba, Russia, and the Ukraine crisis. Welcome to Parallax Views, the guest that I'm very happy to welcome to the show, Dr. William Leogrande of American University and author of a rather interesting article in Responsible Statecraft, a publication we really enjoy here, entitled Why Cuba Has Threaded the Russian Needle for 60 Years. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Thanks for having me on. So before we get into the article itself, maybe you could tell my listeners a little bit about uh, your background and your interest in Cuba. 
Sure. I'm a professor of government at American University here in Washington, D.C. Uh, I study U.S. relations with Latin America and Latin American politics. And uh, currently, I'm working primarily on Cuba, uh, both what's been going on on the island and also uh, the changes in U.S. relations with Cuba from Obama to Trump to Biden. So recently on, on March 2nd, the U.N. General Assembly uh, voted 141 to 5 to condemn uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and uh, Cuba abstained. And I, I'm curious, uh, what are we to make of Cuba abstaining from that vote? Because I, I know there's some people that will think, ah, this is just Cuba siding with the autocracy in, in Russia. But I, I think it may be a little bit more complicated than that. And there is a complex relationship between Russia and Cuba over the years, no? Very complex relationship over the years, yes. Uh, it's important to understand that small states have always used international law as a kind of a shield against uh, bullying by great powers. Uh, and Cuba is no exception. I mean, Cuba has been living in the shadow of a hostile United States now since 1959. And so the Cubans have always been very vocal upholding uh, the principles of international law of non-intervention uh, in the affairs of other states and respect for other countries' uh, sovereignty. But at the same time, uh, international law is a, a weak shield when a great power is really intent upon imposing its will on a small one. We're seeing that right now in Ukraine. So when the United States turned hostile in 1959, the Cubans sought out international partners that could help protect them from U.S. hostility. And the Soviet Union was willing to come to Cuba's assistance. And ever since that time, uh, well, with, with uh, one interregnum, if you will, after the Soviet Union collapsed. But for most of those years, uh, Cuba and Russia, or the Soviet Union, had very close relations. Uh, Fidel Castro said at one point that if it hadn't been for help from the Soviet Union, Cuba could never have survived the hostility of the United States. And so a very, very close relationship, a close friendship developed over the years, interrupted, as I say, only for a few years uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Today, uh, Russia is one of Cuba's major power partners, if you will. They have good trade relations. Uh, the Russians have been giving them economic assistance. They have a strategic partnership, is how they uh, describe it, which extends beyond just economic cooperation into a range of other fields, including military cooperation. So that relationship with Russia is still very important to Cuba. So two pillars, if you will, of Cuban foreign policy over the years, the principle of non-intervention and respect for sovereignty on the one hand, partnership with Russia on the other. And so when those two principles clash, when it's Russia that violates the principle of non-interference in the eternal affairs of other countries, the Cubans are really on the horns of a dilemma. And that's where they found themselves uh, in the United Nations General Assembly. But it's not for the first time. Uh, in 1968, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. And then again, in 1979, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan. And in both of those cases as well, Cuba found itself caught between these two conflicting principles, both of which are really important for its foreign policy. And in all three occasions, they've tried to thread the needle, as the article says. Uh, on the one hand, uh, 
reaffirming their support for the principle of non-intervention, uh, but on the other hand, trying to not uh, do that in a way that would damage or break their relationship with this important partner. If you could, could you talk a little bit about how uh, Cuba reacted to uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968 and also Afghanistan in 1979 when it came to uh, Russia and the interventions? Sure. So in 1968, uh, it was a time when Cuba and the Soviet Union were, were the relationship was really strained. Uh, the, the Soviets were not happy with Cuba's domestic politics, which uh, looked more like China than, than looked like the Soviet Union. Uh, and they were not happy with Cuba's foreign policy in Latin America either, which was one of promoting guerrilla warfare when the Soviet Union was trying to build diplomatic relations with Latin American countries. So a lot of people expected Fidel Castro would uh, criticize the invasion of Czechoslovakia. Uh, and when he finally, after several days, gave a major public address, he supported the intervention. He reaffirmed the principle of non-intervention and, and acknowledged that what the Soviet Union had done was a violation of international law, but he justified it on the grounds that it, the integrity of the socialist bloc was more important. And the Soviet Union had done this in order to prevent the overthrow of of communism in Czechoslovakia, so it was justified. In the case of Afghanistan, it was a particularly difficult situation for the Cubans because they had just literally months before been elected to chair the non-aligned movements, which was the non-aligned movement basically was a, a broad organization, including pretty much every country in the global South. And Fidel Castro had long aspired to be a leader of the global south. And with Cuba's uh, election in September 1979, uh, he achieved that aspiration. And literally three months later, the Soviet Union invaded a member of the non-aligned states. And the Cubans, again, were stuck in this dilemma. In that case, Cuba at the UN once again uh, affirmed its support for the principle of non-intervention asserted that what the Soviet Union had done violated international law, didn't say a single word in defense of the intervention, but on the resolution condemning the Soviet Union, Cuba voted no. And Castro explained the rationale to, to US diplomats who visited him in Havana just a couple of days after that, saying basically that look, the Soviet Union has stuck by us uh, ever since the revolution in the face of, of the United States trying to overthrow us. And so we're not going to side with the United States against the Soviet Union. And you saw a similar rationale at the United Nations of the Cuban uh, representative this time around with, with Ukraine, where the Cuban representative said right off the bat uh, that this was a violation of international law, that Cuba upheld the principle of non-intervention. Uh, again, there was very little uh, justification for what the Soviet Union had done, or, or excuse me, what Russia had done. And the Cubans called for a diplomatic a settlement and an end to the fighting. Um, at the same time, however, the, the Cuban position was very critical of the West and particularly the United States. For... Yeah, I, I think it was that they, uh, they sort of expressed the belief that the, the West instigated uh, a little bit uh, by expanding NATO right up to Russia's borders. Exactly. Yes, that's exactly right. It was the the argument about uh, about the expansion of NATO 
threatening Russia's vital interests and and the West basically not being willing to to take account of of Russia's security interests. Uh, an argument, by the way, that you know goes all the way back to George Kennan, uh, the famous U.S. diplomat who made that argument back when NATO was being expanded after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, is it possible that Cuba's uh, view on NATO expansion or the view that it's at least expressing in this sort of threading of the needle, uh, do you think any of that may relate to uh, Cuba's feelings with regards to its relationship to the West and, and the U.S. over the years, because I, I think they've been um, really hurt by sanctions over the years, and there, there's probably a lot of hostility there. Well, I mean, there's no question that uh, the Cubans see the United States as their adversary because that's how the United States has positioned itself uh, with, well, really for, for more than 60 years with a small, uh, you know, a two-year window in the Obama administration when President Obama was committed to trying to normalize relations. Uh, so, so yes, it's a, it's a hostile relationship. I mean, the Cubans would prefer Obama's policy and, and they continue to say that, you know, they're open to, to resuming a, a, a process of engagement, but the United States right now doesn't seem interested in doing that. And so um, the Cubans, as they have in the other two instances, are looking to maintain uh, a, a positive relationship with other major powers, and not just Russia these days, but uh, also China. And, and I mean, from Cuba's perspective, that makes sense, uh, because I mean, there's really no one else to turn to. They're a small country, and, and you know, it's been a long-term hostile relationship with the U.S. What, what's always been curious to me is there was that two-year window with Obama. Why did we sort of revert back to uh, hostility rather than normalization? And do you think that has had uh, a negative impact on a, a lot of foreign policy lately? Well, we did it because of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump's appealing to conservative Cuban Americans in South Florida in an effort to win the state of Florida in the 2016 election. Uh, and, and Cuban Americans voted uh, in the majority uh, for Trump in 2016 and and by a big majority in 2020. So Trump's policy was um, pretty much directly related to domestic politics more than to any foreign policy consideration. What's um, surprising is that Joe Biden has kept Trump's policy, uh, even though during the campaign he criticized it and promised that he would reverse it. Uh, I, I think there's a number of reasons for that. One of them, again, is domestic politics in Florida and, and the Democrats. The fact that Democrats got beaten so badly in South Florida in 2020 is it's thrown the fear of God into them, I think. Um, and the other is that, you know, in the great scheme of things, Cuba is sort of not high on the priority list of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, it doesn't pose any threat to us, doesn't really pose any threat to its neighbors. Uh, and there's a just really strong, articulate, uh, wealthy uh, domestic political constituency in, among conservative Cuban Americans in, a, in an electorally strategic state that uh, has tremendous influence. If normalization would have continued, and I, I know this is speculative, but would we be in a different situation right now with how Cuba has reacted to the Ukraine crisis potentially? So it's hard to know, of course, uh, but if we were still dealing with Cuba in a positive way with a policy of engagement, improving relations, 
we would have given the Cubans more space, if you will, to be more critical of Russia because Russia would have been less important as a strategic partner than it is today. So I wanted to get into something you mentioned earlier that there was a, a, a period where um, Cuba and Russia's relationship was uh, strained. I mean, there were various periods, but you mentioned right after the uh, Soviet Union's collapse. And I, I assume you're talking there about the, the Boris Yeltsin years. What happened with the Boris Yeltsin years in relation to Cuba? And then what happens uh, when Vladimir Putin comes into power? So uh, during the period of Gorbachev's reforms and the gradual uh, end of the Cold War, the George H.W. Bush administration put tremendous power uh, pressure on the Soviet Union to cut off aid to Cuba as a condition of normalizing US-Soviet relations. And Gorbachev wouldn't do that. Gorbachev uh, recognized that the amounts of aid that the Soviet Union had been giving to Cuba was not sustainable. And so he was gradually reducing it, but he wouldn't cut the Cubans off because he knew it would be a disaster for the Cuban economy. When the Soviet Union collapsed and Boris Yeltsin became president of the Russian Federation, he cut the Cubans off overnight. And so the Cubans in, in literally the space of one year lost roughly three or four billion dollars in external funding that they had been getting from the Soviet Union. It plunged the Cuban economy into a decade long depression. GDP fell 35%, real incomes fell something north of 60%. And it was just, a, it was a horrible time for uh, the standard of living of ordinary Cubans. When uh, Putin became president, he had the objective of trying to restore Russia's global influence. And to do that, he started uh, trying to mend fences with some of the Soviet Union's traditional allies. And one of those was Cuba. So he traveled to Cuba and subsequently uh, Raul Castro traveled to Moscow and senior officials have been going back and forth ever since. Uh, Putin restored trade relations and uh, extended new loans to Cuba and new economic assistance to Cuba. He forgave several billion dollars in Soviet era debt that Cuba owed the old Soviet Union. Uh, and, and they forged this strategic partnership, as they call it, to extend their cooperation beyond just, uh, just the economy. So I think this is part of Putin's overall global strategy of trying to uh, restore Russia's status as, as a great power and with global influence. Uh, just a, a few more questions here. I wanted to ask you about this issue of, of sanctions, um, because you note that uh, you know, the sanctions against Russia by the West are likely to hurt Cuba, too. Uh, could you talk about that and how it factors into this uh, whole issue we've been speaking about? Sure. So one of the impacts that Cuba has already seen is uh, the, the fall off in Russian tourists to Cuba. Uh, Russians are, are not the major source of tourism to Cuba, but they're an important source. Uh, with the closure of Western airspace to Soviet or to Russian, excuse me, Russian air, air flights, uh, there's no easy way for Russians to travel to Cuba. 
And so a number of um, tourist programs that were scheduled to come from, from Russia to Cuba have been canceled. The other way it's going to hurt, of course, is that uh, Russia is not going to have the resources to provide uh, significant economic assistance or even loans uh, to Cuba going forward. So uh, that's going to hurt the Cuba and Cuba's macro economy. Really quickly in that regard, is that also part of this, the fact that, I mean, there's been an embargo against Cuba for so long, it, you know, it's almost like they they have to, you know, ally with countries like Russia just out of um, necessity, almost um, just bare survival. Well, you know, a small country under threat by the most powerful country in the world is going to look for allies wherever it can find them. Um, and, and the Cubans, I should say, not just look for great powers. Uh, yes, they, they've, they've been building a, a partnerships with both Russia and China, but Cuba uh, also works very hard still to have good relations with the global South. And so they have very good relations uh, with a number of the countries in Africa and Asia. Uh, Cuba was, was in fact uh, reelected chair of the non-aligned movement a few years ago. So it continues to play a, a leadership role there. Um, and, you know, as we know, uh, every year the United Nations has a vote on uh, condemning the U.S. embargo and calling on the United States to lift the embargo. That resolution has passed every year for 29 years. And typically the number of countries voting with the United States is one or two. Uh, and in this last go round, it was just one, Israel. And Israel doesn't observe the embargo. Israel has normal trade relations with Cuba. And it votes with the United States for the obvious reason that the United States always vetoes anti-Israeli resolutions in the Security Council. One of the lines that uh, stuck out to me um, in your article was, uh, you say that realpolitik dictates that Cuba cultivate good relations with major powers like Russia and China so uh, so long as it lives in the shadow of a hostile United States. Now, with uh, a crisis like this, I, I think emotions are very high, rightfully so. Uh, a lot of people um, look at what Russia has done and, and rightfully say this is an aggressive action against a smaller country. And I, I think they'll look at Cuba and be like, well, you should be doing more. How do you explain maybe to, to students that have a knee-jerk reaction uh, to Cuba, because I, I think we've also been propagandized in some way about Cuba over the years. How do you explain to them uh, the difficult spot that Cuba's in? Well, well, hopefully through podcasts like this, where I could get into some details about about how the Cubans uh, are viewing these are viewing these things. Um, the you know the Cubans have almost always in the last sixty years sought to have a better relationship with the United States. It doesn't serve Cuba's national interest to have the United States be uh, trying to foment regime change, trying to uh, you know, collapse their economy. Uh, it, it hurts ordinary Cubans and, and it prevents the government, frankly, from pursuing uh, you know, its own economic development strategies. Uh, the United States just can't accept that we have this country in our sphere of influence that is uh, trying to pursue a, a, a model of economic and political development, which is so different from ours. 
we still have for Latin America, we still have this idea that this region is our sphere of influence. You know, the, the administration, you know, it, um, Tony Blinken in his in his rightful critique of uh, Russian, the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine has denounced the idea of spheres of influence and said, you know, this is a relic of history. Big powers don't get to have spheres of influence anymore. And yet we maintain one here in the Western Hemisphere, right? We're hostile to Cuba. We're hostile toward Bolivia. We're hostile toward Venezuela. We're hostile towards Nicaragua because they have, uh, because they aspire to a, a socialist model of development. And, and we don't think that that's uh, acceptable in our own Especially backyard. Especially in our own backyard. In our own backyard, that, right. In our sphere of influence. I mean, the Monroe Doctrine is an explicit declaration that the Western Hemisphere is our sphere of influence. So the last thing I wanted to touch upon was, uh, you mentioned the non-aligned movement. And um, in looking at the history of the 20th century and, and the Cold War, I think the non-aligned movement suffered a great deal when it didn't have to. Um, I look at things like Indonesia in, in the mid to late 60s mm -hmm. and the massacres that happened there. Um, are we going to see another tough period for a lot of these smaller countries that uh, are non-aligned? Well, you know, uh, the non-aligned movement has sort of faded from view with the end of the Cold War because it was, in a sense, a, a creation of the Cold War. It was a reaction by the global South against the threat that the Cold War posed to their very existence, right? I mean, uh, their, their principal platform when they were first founded was an end to the Cold War and an end to the nuclear arms race, because they were afraid that uh, it would result in nuclear war that would, would destroy them just like everybody else. With the end of the Cold War, I think that uh, that sort of raison d'etre uh, disappeared. And, and so the movement has languished a little bit. If we're on the eve of a new Cold War, which we may very well be, then it's possible that the non-aligned movement will take on new relevance and, and be reinvigorated. I think we just have to wait and see. Is there anything you would like to say in closing, um, just to my listeners, uh, what do you hope they get out of this conversation? And maybe what do you hope that, uh, especially my younger listeners, I have a lot of uh, uh, listeners that are just getting into college and thinking about these things more. Uh, what do you hope that they uh, are trying to understand when it comes to Cuba and U.S. foreign policy and Cuba's relations with other countries like Russia and China? Yeah, you know, that the Cuban position is not a black and white position, right? That that it, it's always been complex. It's, it's always been nuanced. Uh, it, it's always been in defense of the basic principles of non-intervention and national sovereignty that are inscribed in the Charter of the United Nations and the Charter of the Organization of American States, um, but that you know they understand realpolitik. Uh, they understand that we've been trying to overthrow their government for 60 years, and so they're going to look for safe harbor wherever they can find it. Yeah, I, I was going to say too, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, but it, it probably doesn't help that there's been uh, this controversy since the Trump years uh, about the so-called Havana syndrome, which that has not helped uh, relations between the U.S. and Cuba either. Well, yeah, when when the so-called Havana syndrome first came to public attention, uh, it was because of about two dozen U.S. diplomats and personnel serving in Havana 
were suffering these strange health symptoms. And so at first it was thought that this was just something that was happening in Havana. And of course, you know, conservative Republicans immediately said, well, the Cuban government is doing this. They're attacking our diplomats. That really didn't make any sense um, because it was right as U.S.-Cuban relations were improving, which the Cuban government was very much in support of. And so the idea that the Cuban government would be behind it just didn't make, just didn't make sense. Well, now, of course, we know that this has been happening, whatever it is, uh, this has been happening all over the world and including right here in Washington, D.C. So obviously it's not the Cuban government that's doing it. Um, it's, it, it is still a mystery as to what the cause of this is. And it seems like every new report that comes out comes to a different conclusion about either what it is or what it might be. So we still don't know. Um, I think it's it's fair to say, though, that U.S.-Cuban relations have suffered grievously as a result of this, because the first thing that happened was that the Trump administration used it as an excuse to downsize the personnel at the U.S. embassy and close the consular section so that Cubans couldn't get a visa to come to the United States without traveling to some third country in a U.S. embassy there, which, of course, virtually none of them could afford. Um, that I, I was going to add too, just briefly, I, I think I, I've talked to uh, people in Cuba about this. I could see why uh, Cuba would react with indignation over these accusations because they are pretty big accusations to make. Uh, you're, you're accusing a, a foreign government of using exotic weaponry to uh, attack U.S. officials. Well, that's right. I mean, the Cubans, the Cubans were adamant that they had nothing to do with it. They invited the FBI to come and... Uh, investigate. The FBI sent several delegations down there to investigate, but they didn't make any progress getting to the bottom of it. And as I say, you know, we've had the FBI, the CIA uh, investigating this now for, what, five years? And we still don't know exactly what the cause of this uh, of this was. Um, so, I, you know, I think the State Department has, has stopped uh, explicitly blaming the Cubans for it the way that the Trump State Department did. Uh, but the consular section is still not open. And we're still in violation of a 1994 migration agreement that we signed with Cuba, in which we promised 20,000, a minimum of 20,000 immigrant visas a year. Under the Trump administration, it was about 10% of, of that commitment. So uh, we're the ones in violation of, of our agreement on migration with Cuba and the Biden administration so far, they keep saying they're going to reopen the consular section, but they haven't done it yet. Well, William Leo Grande, I want to thank you for coming on Parallax News. Could you let my listeners know how they can keep up with your work? Sure. I am on uh, Twitter and, uh, as a WM Leo Grand uh, and uh you can you can Google me at uh, and and see what I'm writing at Responsible Statecraft or World Policy Review, World Politics Review, excuse me, uh, or or any any other uh, any other number of of outlets that are available online. Next up, Dr. Christian Coates Ulrichsen, fellow for. The Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy 
joins us to discuss his Doha News article, What the Russian Invasion of Ukraine Means for Small States. This conversation focuses in particular on what the invasion of Ukraine means for Gulf states like Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates. With that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Dr. Christian Coates Ulrichsen. Welcome to Parallax Views, Christian Ulrichsen, fellow for the Middle East at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy and author of the article, What the Russian Invasion of Ukraine Means for Small States. Uh, maybe first we could start uh, with your area of expertise and describing uh, how you got involved in looking at the Gulf states. Well, thank you for having me. My work on the Gulf goes back about 15 years and has focused mainly on tracking the political, economic, and security trends in the region and in looking at the ways in which the Gulf countries, including Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and the UAE, the United Arab Emirates, have become much more involved in regional and international politics over the past two decades. So the period between 2002, 2003, when oil prices began to increase, and then the period before, during, and after the Arab Spring in 2011, and the last decade of uh, instability across much of the Middle East. And so really tracking the different ways in which different Gulf countries have become much more influential, not just within the region, but increasingly around the world as well. So for lay audiences that may not see the connection between Putin's invasion of Ukraine and the effect this could have um, in the Gulf region, uh, maybe you could lay that out uh, for my audience. Yeah, and when I'm talking about the Gulf, I'm talking about the Persian Gulf, of course, not the, the Gulf of Mexico or any other Gulf. The direct significance of the invasion of Ukraine is probably secondary for Gulf countries in the sense that they're not obviously on the front line. They are several thousands of miles away from, from the battlefields. However, the Gulf countries and all Gulf countries have in the past two decades developed economic and energy and political relationships with Russia at the same time that they are tied by political security and defense networks with the US. The US has been heavily invested in security in the Gulf since the 1990 uh, invasion of Kuwait by Iraq. And so for the last 30 years, all six Gulf countries have been integrated into a network of US defense and security and political relationships in the Middle East. They have also become closer to Russia and to China, mainly on an economic and investment and energy sphere. And so they don't want to be forced, I think, to be having to take a choice, having to pick sides. And so for this reason, we've seen, especially Saudi Arabia and the UAE, uh, be very careful in trying to hedge between overtly taking sides in the war and the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. The UAE perhaps is more 
of a, a sensitive issue just because the UAE for this year and for next year is also one of the members of the UN Security Council. And so the UAE has had to be in a position where they've had to vote on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And they attracted quite a lot of criticism a couple of weeks ago because the, the UAE abstained on a vote that condemned the invasion. So for the Gulf countries, the, the effects are secondary. They're not frontline, but they are going to have an impact in terms of their own international relationships and partnerships going forward. And in the article, you talk about how, um, you know, there's five small states in the Gulf that have to exist uh, alongside more conventionally powerful states. Could you talk a little bit about that dynamic? Yeah. So if we look at the Gulf as a wider region, we have Iraq, Iran, and Saudi Arabia, three large states, although Iran is much larger than Iraq and Saudi Arabia, but they still have populations of between 25 and 30 million up to 80 plus. And so they're much larger in terms of size, in terms of population, in terms of military power, in all the conventional metrics of of size, they're large states. And then we have five much smaller states. We have Kuwait, Qatar, Bahrain, the UAE, and Oman, which are five states in, again, different degrees of smallness. For example, Bahrain, is absolutely tiny. Uh, Qatar and Kuwait are pretty small. The UAE and Saudi Arabia are relatively larger, but still small. In fact, the five smaller Gulf states is about seven times smaller than Saudi Arabia. So that gives you an indication of their relative size. And historically, all the five smaller Gulf countries have had issues with their larger neighbors. So. Iraq, as we all know, occupied Kuwait in 1990. Iran has claimed parts of Bahrain uh, to be, well, Iran has historically claimed Bahrain to be part of their territory. Bahrain has obviously successfully disputed that. In the 1970s, Iran made a territorial claim on Bahrain, which Bahrain successfully disputed. The, uh, Iran also has occupied two islands belonging to the UAE, and then Saudi Arabia at different times in its history has also made territorial claims on its Gulf neighbors, including Qatar, including the UAE and also Oman. So there's always been a point of tension between the five smaller states and the three larger ones. And obviously, as you point out, uh, you know, this invasion of Ukraine and what is happening to the Ukrainians certainly probably it ultimately I guess, uh, resonates uh, with uh, Kuwaitis. Um, Could you speak to that a little bit? Well, it does. I mean, we saw in the months leading up to the invasion of Ukraine in February, we saw several months in which Vladimir Putin had sent 100 plus thousand soldiers to the the border. So you had this massive military buildup on the border of Russia with Ukraine. You had Vladimir Putin issuing threats before he went in. There was no, this wasn't a lightning strike that took everyone by surprise. It was preceded by months of a buildup and increasingly aggressive threats. And that's exactly what Saddam Hussein had done in the summer of 1990 against Kuwait. There had been a mass buildup of Iraqi forces on the Kuwaiti border. And Saddam Hussein had throughout June and July 1990 singled out Kuwait um, for, for verbal threats, for 
he was accusing Kuwait of uh, taking Iraqi oil because there were oil fields that straddled the border. So it would have resonated the way that a much larger country was massing its troops and making threats towards a smaller neighbor, even though, of course, there's difference in size. I mean, Ukraine is uh, the second largest country in Europe, but vis-a-vis Russia, it is much smaller, just as Kuwait vis-a-vis Iraq is, is very small too. So for Kuwait, which had the experience of having been being invaded and then subject to a pretty brutal seven-month occupation, which ultimately was only uh, reversed through a multinational coalition, uh, I think that's why the Kuwaiti leadership has been the most robust so far in actually condemning the Russians for, for invading Ukraine, because they obviously have direct experience of what it's like to see your much larger neighbor come in with tanks, with hundreds of thousands of troops, and literally just take over an entire country, and you cease to exist. At the beginning of uh, the article you wrote uh, for Doha News, you write that all six Gulf monarchies voted in favor of a United Nations General Assembly resolution on March 2nd, uh, demanding Russia halt its invasion of Ukraine and withdraw all of its troops from the country. Why do you start the article there? And, and what is the relevance of uh, those monarchies voting in favor of that United Nations General Assembly revolution, resolution? Well, there's only one, I mean, there's only one Gulf country currently on Security Council, that's the UAE. And as I said, the UAE had abstained at the Security Council in condemning the invasion. They got a lot of criticism for that. The General Assembly is every nation at the UN. Its resolution isn't binding, so it has less force, but it's still a way of taking the temperature, so to speak, taking the international temperature. And the fact that all six Gulf countries voted to support the condemnation of the the invasion at least was a way of the Gulf countries lining up with other US partners and allies around the world in at least being on the same page in a way that the UAE at the Security Council hadn't been. So there was criticism of other countries at the General Assembly, which abstained, countries like South Africa, for example. But if you're looking at this from a US perspective, US has a lot of partners in the Middle East, and at least those partners voted with the US at the General Assembly, rather than in the UAE's case of the Security Council, actually taking quite a different position. So I think that's why I uh, opened the article in that way, because all six countries were now at least rhetorically lining up with the U.S. on this question. And if you could, could you detail to my listeners, uh, you you talk a little bit about the um, rules-based order. Uh, And, you know, even though it hasn't proven infallible in the past, so maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, the rules-based order and how it relates to these smaller states. Yeah, the rules-based order has come in for a lot of criticism by people who have pointed out, for example, that it didn't prevent the invasion of Iraq in 2003, which was undertaken by the US with the UK and a number of other countries, and again, undertaken without support from the United Nations. And so the rules-based order, as you say, isn't infallible, and countries like the US or the UK or other countries around the world, in this case, Russia, potentially China as well, are also guilty of violating or at least trying to work around the rules-based order when it suits their interests. Having said that, if you are a small country and 
in this case, a small country in a volatile part of the world, which has seen repeated interstate wars over the past 40 years. The Gulf has seen three major wars from 1980 to 88, the Iran-Iraq War, 1990-91, the invasion of Kuwait, and then the Gulf War, and then the invasion of Iraq in 2003. There's been three major wars. And so if you're a small country in a volatile part of the world, at least the existence of a rules-based order underpinned by the United Nations, underpinned by something that would in theory at least prevent big countries from just doing what they want and literally rolling across borders when it suited them. That's, that's one line of defense. I mean, another line of defense that Gulf countries have had is to conclude long-term partnerships with the US, the UK, France, uh, other countries to try and ensure that were something negative to happen, they would have uh, partners who would potentially come to their support in the same way that in 1990, Kuwait didn't at the time have those partnerships on paper, but because of the importance Kuwait had in terms of energy partnerships, countries around the world didn't just accept Saddam Hussein's uh, violation of Kuwaiti sovereignty. They actually mobilized to do something about it. And so this is, again, an appeal to the international community and to the rules-based order to try to create for the smaller Gulf countries these networks of partnerships, which mean that were something bad to happen, people wouldn't just shrug and say, oh, well, that's a shame. It has nothing to do with us. So then that gets into a point that you make that, uh, you know, these smaller Gulf states have been able to uh, develop uh, you know, different forms of power, soft, smart, and, and subtle power, in addition to conventional hard power. Uh, but, you know, the events of the past few weeks have shown, you know, milit- military might still matters. And that could be very scary, I assume, for these smaller states. Well, what we've seen is that if you're a country that is smaller than its neighbor, regardless of how large Ukraine is in absolute terms, but if you have a much larger neighbor who masses their military on your border, there's not as much you can do to stop them from going over. And what the smaller countries have done, especially Qatar and especially the UAE, Abu Dhabi and Dubai, what they have done is to try to offset their small size. To, I mean, they can't do anything about their location. You can't just move the Gulf countries into a different locations. You can't change your neighbors. You can't change your small size. You, can to some extent change the population size, but you can also develop different types of power. You can develop infrastructure power, investment power, power through your use of energy, for example. And so when uh, Qatar was placed under blockade by several of their neighboring states in 2017, one of the reasons the blockade failed was because almost no international countries joined the attempt to isolate them. One reason being that Qatar had long-term energy partnerships with countries around the world. So they can develop different types of soft power that can overcome or at least offset the hard power. But ultimately, were were Iran to decide that they wanted to invade Bahrain, for example, or Saudi Arabia were to go into Qatar, that would only take you so far. It might mobilize an international response, but at least in the beginning, probably not be able to prevent a larger power from actually moving in. And so I think, especially, as you said, one of the reasons why the Russian invasion of Ukraine has resonated, especially in Kuwait, 
is because it has highlighted maybe some of the limitations of being a small state in a volatile neighborhood with much larger neighbors who, if they decide they want to do something bad, can probably do so, and at least in the short term, inflict a lot of damage before they get stopped. And one thing that comes up um, very centrally to to your article is uh, Putin's invocation of uh, what I guess is called the the ancient lands narrative. So what is the ancient lands narrative and and why is that really significant in your view? Uh, What could it be spelling in terms of where things are headed with international relations and geopolitics? Well, Putin began the invasion with a lengthy diatribe, a lengthy kind of speech in which he really claimed that Ukraine had never existed as a country. He almost tried to deny that there was a separate entity called Ukraine, that they didn't have any legitimacy, any right to exist separate from, as he sees it, this sort of wider Russian sphere of dominance and sphere of influence. And I think for the Gulf countries and for the Middle East as a whole, that There's no specific, distinct or direct parallel, but when you talk about family ties, tribal connections in the Gulf, they're so interlinked. I mean, these are countries whose borders were only drawn up in the 19th and early 20th centuries, in some cases weren't finalized until the 1960s and 70s. You've had centuries of relationships that crossed what are now political borders. The political borders that came very late in the game, but we you, know, you have family networks, tribal networks, networks of economic and commercial partnerships, and of course they all speak the same language, but cross, cross borders. And so one of the features of the, the blockade of Qatar, for example, was the Saudi and UAE who were trying to blockade Qatar, tried to come up with potential alternate rulers that would suit themselves, suit their interests. So they try to identify people living in Saudi Arabia or in the UAE who, in their view, had more legitimacy as a ruler of a subservient Qatar than the Qatari ruling family did. So these long historical transnational connections uh, could be used in terms of trying to build support for an alternative leadership. So that's why I think the ancient sort of lands narrative that Putin was trying to invoke, trying to almost deny the right of Ukraine to exist, maybe also would have uh, resonated at least in in some quarters in the Gulf. Where do you see all of this potentially heading? Um, Because sometimes I think a lot of people don't realize what is at stake uh, with this invasion and what it means, not just for uh, the Gulf, but also just the, the world more generally. So w- where do you see everything is standing right now? Are we seeing uh, this sort of emergence of a, of a brave new world, depending on how this uh, plays out? Well, I think if you're a smaller state, you don't want to be moving into a world where might is right, where you can, larger countries can ignore international norms and, and ignore international rules in a sense and get away with it. I mean, if if Putin was to get away with swallowing Ukraine, or at least swallowing a large part of Ukraine, and there was nothing to stop him from doing so, then 
what about other countries that try to do the same thing? China with Taiwan, for example, or maybe close to home, or some of the larger countries in the Middle East, including in the Gulf. So I think there's a, a lot at stake for whether or not a, the leadership of a much more powerful country feels they can get away with something, and whether or not the international community, such as it is, is able to counter-mobilize to stop that. And obviously in 1990, in the 1991 with the Gulf War, there was a mobilization. Saddam Hussein was stopped. He was forced to withdraw from Kuwait. And so I think we'll be looking very carefully to see what kind of outcome there is, whether there's a resolution to the fighting in Ukraine and what terms Russia has to withdraw, where that leaves Ukraine at the end of it. And then what that says for the ability of large, conventionally powerful countries to act in ways that suit their interests and whether or not they can be stopped by at least an international uh, pushback. And the last question I had for you, since we talked about uh, the international rules-based order, I think when I was growing up, I think uh, during the, the 2000s and after the war on terror, there was a lot of rightful um, criticism of, as you put it, the, the order not being uh, infallible and being open to abuse even by Western powers. How are we to look at these things in the now, though? Because I, I think some of us were very affected by that, that period of uh, you know, 2003 and, and whatnot. How are we to look at these things now and how can we create uh, an order that isn't as uh, prone to abuse? That's a very, very good, probably a very difficult question to answer. The, we can see the ways in which, for example, the Biden administration is responding to this uh, crisis now in, in terms of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. You know, they're responding in a very, in some ways, a very responsible way. They're not rushing in. They're not trying to create coalitions where they don't exist. They are at least trying to work with partners and allies to increase the cost to Russia without directly engaging. And I think that's probably the right thing to do in terms of building a coalition of support of like-minded states around the world to at least push back without getting involved militarily. It's also, I think, maybe regaining some of the credibility for the US of working with partners and allies. Because also just last summer, we saw the the way the US disengaged from Afghanistan, they did so kind of unilaterally and in such a chaotic way that especially among US partners in the Middle East, they were quite spooked. They thought, well, could we just be dumped in such a way in the future? But I think the way that the administration now is working closely with its partners and allies to at least coordinate a response is probably going to actually increase the confidence of people in Western and other capitals who do continue to put a lot of value in the relationship with the US. That trust in the US was maybe shaken last year in Afghanistan, just the way that the Biden administration pulled out without really coordinating with its partners. But now the way that they are coordinating, again, I think will reassure people, at least in other Western and international capitals that, at least for this administration, they seem to be committed to working with other countries in ways that don't, they're not reckless, 
but they do at least try to work together to find a response to what is seen as a Russian aggression. So I think that gives a degree of confidence that there is a system and that the system at least is working and it isn't being abused perhaps in the way it was in and after 2003 when you had the US administration acting kind of in its own interest against kind of international norms. At least now that we see a much greater attachment to those international norms and uh, working with partners and allies. And I was just going to add really quickly uh, to that. I, I think uh, a lot of this ties into how the Biden administration has been very clear uh, not to want this to become, a, I guess, a, a broader conflict. There's been a lot of carefulness when it comes to uh, talk of no-fly zones. I mean, I, I think NATO and uh, the Biden administration have both rejected that. They're being very careful to not push for this to become broader. So is that um, sort of what you mean by um, the Biden and other Western elements showing a little bit of uh, maybe restraint militarily? Yes, I think so. They made it very clear that there were limits as to what they will do. They will not engage directly. But short of engaging directly, they were also trying to identify ways in which they can work together to at least increase the cost to the Russian leadership of continuing with their current policy in Ukraine. And so we've seen a lot of coordination on sanctions and on basically trying to isolate Russia, although that then has the corollary of making Russian individuals and Russian people pay a price, but uh, perhaps trying to at least raise the cost to Vladimir Putin of continuing down the path he has chosen to go down. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Christian Ulrichsen, for coming on Parallax Views. In, in closing, is there anything that you hope uh, my listeners get out of this conversation? What's the one thing you're, you're hoping that they sort of take in and understand right now? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. But yes, if there's one thing, I would hope that there is some sort of resolution which makes it very clear that Russia has to withdraw from Ukraine and that Ukraine has a sovereign right to choose its own future. Now, whether or not that can be hammered out in any resolution or peace agreement that ends the war is another issue. But uh, certainly, I would hope that a country that moves against one of its neighbors in such an aggressive way is not seen to be able to get away with it, because that could open up a huge can of worms for other countries and other leaders who might be tempted then to try the same thing. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Christian Coates Ulrichsen. Next up for our final segment, we speak with Daniel Bessner of the American Prestige podcast about U.S. foreign policy in light of the Ukraine crisis. If you're unfamiliar with Daniel Bessner, he has worked with Jacobin Magazine and the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. With that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with Daniel Bessner. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I've been meaning to have on for a very long time, as, as I was saying off air, uh, Daniel Bessner of the American Prestige podcast and also associated with uh, both Jacobin Magazine and our great friends of the show, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. How are you doing today? 
Uh, well, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Uh, and I'm doing great. You know, I'm in sunny Los Angeles. Uh, things are really nice uh, for my life. And I'm doing depressed because the world uh, is just not in the greatest situation, um, as I'm sure we'll talk about given the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And this is sort of always the interesting thing about studying international relations while living a very comfortable <laughs> domestic life is the profound disconnect between what you're observing and writing about, uh, unless you're a war reporter or something like that, um, and then how you're living your life. <laughs> so I'm curious, how do you view the Russian invasion of Ukraine and this war that has broken out? I mean, it's a, it's a very shocking moment for a lot of people. I think a lot of people thought that he either wouldn't invade or it would be limited to, say, Donetsk or Luhansk. Uh, but this has become much wider. So uh, what are we to make of this? Is, does this change anything for the left sure. and how it views foreign policy? Well, I think it's a great question. And, and just to be honest, um, I didn't make many predictions, but I, I made one or two. And I didn't think that he would uh, do a full scale invasion where the goal was to um, change the regime in Kiev. And that's mostly because um, I didn't think that it was in Putin's interest or the interests of, of Russia itself. And I think that's proven to be pretty much correct. But, you know, you really can never predict with um 100% uh, accuracy what happens in international relations, and you can't really get in Putin's mind. So uh, I, I don't really beat myself up over not being able to predict things in general, um, and particularly this one, which is such a wild decision. Um, but it's interesting. What does this mean? So I think it, it, it is a shift in that you have, you know, one power land invading a, a neighboring power in Europe, you know, not respecting borders of international sovereignty, um, which has, of course, happened in the past with Russia in 2014. Then um, the United States obviously has done that multiple times, um, both unilaterally and also, you know, at the behest of the so-called, you know, uh, international community, really spearheaded by the North Atlantic community. So these are things that happen, but they do happen rarely. Um, and it's particularly we haven't seen in quite a while, you know, a great power kind of um, Russia is not quite a great power, a major power, let's say, you know, the third of the three major powers, first the U.S., second the PRC, and then Russia. Uh, you don't really often see in our lifetimes, um, you know, one major power land invading another in order to topple it. Um, but but that being said, I think world, talk of World War III is overblown for multiple reasons. Um, most important, it does seem that Biden is not someone who's going to put troops on the ground or, or really encourage U.S. allies to put troops on the ground. And two, um, it's just the it, it, terrible as it may be, uh, and you know, vital as actually it might be for for European powers, um, in terms of U.S. interests, um, Ukraine is not really you know a vital national security interest, regardless of what you think about it. It's hard to argue that. Um, so uh, I think that what is likely to happen is that Putin will either succeed in the regime change, um, or will get bogged down in a Syria esque. Um, insurgent war. Um, both of those seem pretty bad um, for Putin at this point. I don't see how he comes out of this, you know, on top. But um, that's where I find uh, that that's basically my take on the on, on sort of the my analysis of what's happening, what's going to happen. And then we could talk more a little bit about the um, the left's response, broadly speaking, um, if you'd like, but uh, I'll give you a chance to react to all that I just said. Yeah, I, I was curious, and we don't have to get into this too deeply because I don't think anyone can read Putin's mind, but it seems like everyone is having debates about what caused this or what led up to it. So you have some people saying uh, this was about NATO expansion. You have other people saying this is about the 
Eastern Orthodox Church and this Russian world teaching uh, that that is taught by some in the church. Uh, what do you think is behind um, this invasion? And I, like I said, I don't want to do too much mind reading, but I, I think a lot of no, people get question, caught up yeah. in that debate. Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, um, my guess is all of those things uh, and that it's impossible to know without looking at documents uh, and seeing what people actually said. And even then, you know, who knows what lies in the heart of men um, or women or people of any gender for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I, my guess is that NATO expansion played a role. My guess is Putin's desire to sort of leave something to the historical of Russia played a role. My guess is that Putin's own personal experiences and ideology played a role. Uh, my guess is coronavirus played a role. The isolation of Putin, um, my guess. I was going to say, that- even for me, I, you know, I was talking to Patrick Coburn recently and he said, you know, for all the talk of Putin being a madman, it could just be that he's infected by what happens to many leaders and that's hubris. Yeah, I mean, and there's all these personal things that go in there. I mean, that that are really difficult to know for certain, but it's, it's a miasma of causes. Um, and I certainly think NATO expansion is absolutely one of them. I find it ridiculous, absurd when people deny that, but it's not the only one. Um, and it's difficult to know the ones that are more linked in sort of Putin's individual experience and his particular read on both Russia's geopolitical position and also his and his coterie's domestic position. I'm sure that all went in, into it as well. And those are basically just known unknowns, as the uh, philosopher Donald Rumsfeld once uh, told us. So. In regards to the left response, how should the left be responding to this? And also, do you think the left or elements of it, uh, especially within the chattering class elements of the left, uh, do you think we've responded to it in some ways that may be dangerous? Because I've become worried about some people responding to this with um, any talk of NATO expansion is just a Kremlin talking point. I don't think that's very helpful. And I'm starting to get worried. I mean, to me, that's clearly ridiculous. But has anyone serious said that or is that? I don't know. I I think it's just uh, things I've seen on social media. So maybe it's not that serious yet. Yeah. I mean, that's such a ridiculous thing to basically say, totally disregard all of Putin's perceived security concerns. I can't imagine anyone of uh, who is particularly serious would say that. Um, So I don't take that seriously, really. It's just like that's basically declaring I don't want to talk about this, which is fine. You don't have to want to talk about everything. You know, that's not that. You know, there's certain issues that I talk about, I mean, that I don't talk about that are of vital importance to this world and people in it. Um, but yeah, to me, I just, I mean, what, what, is it, what are you even saying? Then you just cut off half of the analysis. Not serious, in my opinion. Well, then what, what do you think the sort of response of, of the left should be at this point? Yeah, no, that's a good question. How should the left respond? Well, basically, I mean, for starting from the point that whatever we say doesn't matter. Um, so that's an important thing. Unless you, unless you, you're saying like, how should Bernie respond? And what Bernie says, it that that matters. But not re- that's not really who we're talking about. Now we're really talking about like the DSA and the online left, which is just to to a significant degree the left, um, which is kind of. Just I hate the way to of the say world. it, but I think you're right about that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also like that's true for almost every movement. There, you know, gone are the everyone's quote unquote bowling alone right it's not like liberals are going to local meetings either kind of like all politics occurs online uh, one because that's where things were drifting then two after the coronavirus so i'm not saying that as a criticism but like i don't understand when people say like the online like the online left is a criticism it, it just is what it is it's where discourse happens these days particularly among the elite um because they're basically the elite is the left uh the downwardly mobile uh, uh bourgeoisie um which is fine but uh so i think that um 
I mean, I, I think the left should think what I think about it, which is that it's not a vital national security interest, that the goal is to get rid of the American empire, and that eventually, if you want to get rid of the American empire, you have to make difficult decisions about not intervening in moments where the U.S. empire has a capacity to intervene, um, because those sorts of interventions just contribute to the already extraordinarily powerful inertia, both intellectual and institutional, that enables the U.S. empire to continue. Um I think that that states should have militaries, but militaries should be relatively small and should be geared towards the physical security of their inhabitants, not promoting, you know, the American way of life or protecting dollar diplomacy. I think that that is more likely to one focus energies here on the uh, unnecessary domestic reforms that, in my opinion, must occur within the context of a nation state. There's no internationalism really to speak of politically. Uh, and, and then, uh, Two, uh, I think that's just better for the world in the medium and long terms. Um, so that's what I think the left position should be, while also being, you know, um, pushing the government to accept uh, refugees from the war, um, pushing pushing the government to uh, help resettle people and give them actual money, and not only from this war but from all wars. You know, I think the best best left wing foreign policy is, is in some degrees a, an open refugee policy. Um, yeah, so that's what I that's what I take on that. I mean, I haven't been paid like uh, DSA basically. My understanding is they gave a um, uh, a statement, basically um, uh, condemning NATO, right? Something along those lines. It didn't seem that bad, but it just seemed like giving people an excuse to bash the DSA. And then that's also the real question, right? Like, I, if the left wants to think strategically, do issuing essentially meaningless statements in the sense that they're not going to change anything, uh, is that worth worth giving? You know, the people who actually hold power. The ability to you know, quote unquote punch left, maybe it is, I don't know, but these are questions that I think people should be asking themselves. There has been a long tendency on the left to be addicted to what people have called statementism, which is signing every statement that um, you know aligns with their principles. But if you know the left wants to rule, they have to be thinking a bit more strategically than that, particularly when statements are just you know about staking out a position and not actually affecting power. I guess that's what I'd say on that one. So that brings us around to an article you wrote recently uh, for foreign exchanges entitled The Myth of the Quote-Unquote Good Intervention. Um, maybe you could just sum up uh, some of the most important aspects of that article and uh, what drew you to write it. Yeah, well, I guess um, what I view my work at foreign exchanges as doing is to some degree like providing people who identify as left-wing and anti-imperialist with, with arguments that they could make with people that they're talking to in their lives. Uh, lives, And so that's what I was trying to do there by just laying out why am I against intervention? It's not because I'm anti-humanitarianism or it's not because I'm against left-wing principles. It's just because I think the historical record is pretty clear on what happens when the United States actually intervenes in places. Um, and that is negative consequences occur. It's very difficult as a, I think this is a, almost a philosophical position and it's actually like anti-capital P progressive which morphed into a form of liberal internationalism, um, pr progressive as in progressive movement, not sort of the lay way people use it today. But I just don't think powers have the ability to reshape the world in that way. I just don't think that exogenous powers are able to use military might to reshape the world. I, I think things eight out of 10 times, four, four fifths of the time uh, go wrong. Um, and so that's basically what I was trying to do with that article was to just provide a list of like all the times the U.S. intervened and things went terribly and how it's very difficult to have good interventions. And if, you know, you are, you know, if on balance, you think the U.S. empire is worse for the world 
um, then uh, is bad for the world as opposed to good for the world, then you're just more likely, um, I think, to be uh, against uh, intervention, you know, sending weapons, uh, let alone putting boots on the ground. So for you, when this topic comes up in, in say, a conversation and people uh, may not be familiar with the U.S. interventions in the past that have worked out horribly, what's your go-to one that you try to point towards to say, hey, you may want to consider this historical example uh, before advocating for this, this, and the other thing? Well, I mean, the obvious one is Vietnam, and then the second obvious one is Iraq, and and those are terrible interventions that, you know, after spending an enormous amount of money, uh, enormous amount of blood, um, particularly on the side of the victim countries, um, I think just shows that the U.S. isn't really able to reshape societies and oftentimes brings things uh, makes things worse. And then I will oftentimes point people toward um, uh, basically just the list because the list is so is so staggering um, that I think that it kind of like overwhelms people. You know, the fact that there have been so many interventions, you know, somewhere in the mid sixties and that so many of them have been disastrous, I think just highlights the, um, foolishness of intervention. I'm sure both you and I have gotten this before where we'll be accused of that horrible word, uh, that everyone's frightened of isolationism. Um, how do you respond when people say, oh, uh, you're not actually non-interventionist. You're being isolationist. Um, because I, I feel like it's a criticism that is thrown out at anyone who sort of questions the foreign policy blob. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, it, it's kind of not the most serious of criticism, so I don't take it too much to heart. But <laughs> it's funny when people say that they just mean they want the United States to dominate Latin America. <laughs> so that's what I that's what I uh, something to always push back on them. Um, but but yeah, I mean, being against war or being against, you know, dominating the world economically uh, isn't equivalent to not being in favor of international exchange. It's just the quality and type of exchange. Um, and that, and so, I mean, that's the answer, <laughs> you know, like, well, you define isolationist in a very peculiar way that was actually created in the 1930s in order to um, lambaste people who wanted the United States to govern the post-war world. Um, so I don't think that it's, it's, it's not like that serious a critique. So I don't, I don't, it doesn't really let me bother. Yeah, me. It I, just, it just shows I was going to say, like, I, I think that um, Stephen Wertheim has uh, put a lot of time into sort of critiquing that line of thought that, oh, any type of, um, any type of questioning of this sort of foreign policy blob is isolationism. Yeah, I, I, he's right. Thank God I don't have to deal in that world every day like Stephen does, though. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to get into some of your thoughts on uh, where you see this crisis taking us going forward. But uh, I was also curious if you had any thoughts on the the whole uh, I, I, I've seen some people call it the, the John Mersheimer affair we've had. People like Adam Tews uh, chime in on it. I, I, I see you're laughing a little bit. So maybe, maybe you can give me your thoughts on that. Hope it's not I mean, sure. too inside baseball, but. No, not at all. I mean, I could just give my take on realism generally. I, I think realism does provide a useful way for understanding international politics. Uh, I mean, I think concepts that are not, you know, found in realism, but are really expressed through realist thinking in most days, like international anarchy, balance of power, security logics. These are all important things. My problem with realism, I think that it, it really reifies and ossifies the moment in which it came of age, which is the 1930s to the 1950s as sort of the natural state of international politics. I just don't think that's right. Um, I just don't think like the, the great power politics of the 1930s um, 
1940s or 1950s really are the you know the only way of thinking about international politics and i think a lot of the pessimism of realism i think a lot of the sort of um geopolitical uh prescriptions of realism for example the need to dominate east asia to prevent the rise of a chinese regional hegemon um are, are basically artifacts of the period in which it was developed and so i think that's my major critique of it but on, on the other hand it may have uh uses analytically still yeah, absolutely. I, I, absolutely. Especially because so many basic IR concepts are now like basically taught as realism, even if that's not quite, you know, the intellectual genealogy, um, like B, BOP and bandwagoning, you know, really basic concepts. Um, Mersheimer's famous stopping power of water, which is obviously, you know, something people have been saying for 2000 years, uh, are basically taught as realism when they're basically just like intellectual uh, tools in the toolkit of IR thinking. Now, with regards to where this crisis is headed, should we be worried about things like no-fly zones? Because it, it seems like Biden and NATO have actually ruled that out entirely. Yeah, it, it, it's tough to know, you know, because one person can change their mind and then things change. But it does seem that the 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 North Atlantic community, broadly speaking, has signaled that they're not going to fight a real war over Ukraine. They might, you know, make things difficult for for Moscow by shipping weapons. They'll uh, do very, very serious economic sanctions against Putin and also uh, Russian people writ large. But they basically have signaled that they're not going to escalate this in terms of sending troops or, or pushing Putin back. That, that's my read. <laughs> Have you been surprised at all by some of the um, the punditocracy that that is maybe uh, saying, yeah, what? What's wrong with a no-fly zone? Um, it, we have such a low level of foreign policy discourse in this country. Like, I barely pay attention to these people. They're totally unserious. Um, you know, the worst of modern punditocracy is expressed in foreign policy, and that's saying something. Um, it, it's just like, it, again, if I allowed it to bother me, I wouldn't be allowed to do that. Where where do you see this crisis heading going forward? And it, it sounds like, you know, you're you're very firm in the stance. And I, I at this point, I agree with it that, you know, this is not World War Three yet. Um, but a lot of people seem to be jumping on that bandwagon. Well, like everyone wants to believe that they live in the end times. That's the ultimate fantasy, right? Um, yeah, to me, it does not look like it's going to be World War Three. Again, granted, maybe Putin would do something extraordinary and use a, a nuclear weapon at a low yield in Ukraine, and, and then we could start talking about different things. That, to me, does not only appear foolish, but appears semi-suicidal. So uh, it doesn't seem like it's going to do that, but if something like that happens, then we'd have to be having a different conversation. Um, but yes, I, I think as currently situated, I think it could be a long, horrible thing particularly for Ukrainians, um, and it could go on for years, uh, but it doesn't seem like it's going to escalate into the great power war of, of that, which is what characterized World War I and World War II. What do you think the main things people may be missing about this uh, current conflict um, and, and what it may entail for foreign policy going forward? What, what do you think people uh, maybe aren't paying enough attention to? It's tough to know. Um, I mean, I think people, this does suggest that U.S. leaders are not going to make wacky decisions over things that aren't of vital national interest to the United States. Um, the question is, you know, it, does that indicate something about Taiwan? Uh, that's probably the big question. Um, I, I, I think a lot of Taiwanese and a lot of people in the People's Republic of China are paying attention to that. Tough to know. Um, tough to know. U.S. is 
has made more commitments to Taiwan and has been far more embedded in Taiwanese politics for far longer than it ever was in relation to Ukraine. Um, so it's it's not really quite apples to apples, um, but it does suggest that you know the U.S. isn't going to go uh, too far over issues not deemed of vital uh, national security interest. Do you think this uh, has been a, a sort of reflective moment for the U.S. empire in any way or uh, no. just I mean, business I think it's as usual? I think it's broader part of the, what I've termed the strategy of hegemonic stabilization, which is that, you know, there, there's a recognition that the unipolar moment is, is over. Um, and so the United States is not going to be able to act totally unilaterally. I think nation building will not be seen again for a while. If it is again, probably will be. It has reoccurred in U.S. history. Um, but I think it's just like, yeah, we're not going to be in Afghanistan and we're not going to fight a war in Ukraine. It doesn't really say anything about the United States' global posture, particularly because the entire strategic community is really focused on East Asia. So then if we're not in the unipolar world, I, I, I take it you you are seeing sort of the transition, I guess, to the multipolar world. What, what do we mean when we talk about uh, this transition away from a unipolar world and what does that entail? I mean, it, it means a couple of different things. Um, it means like, for example, the North Atlantic community now controls less of the world GDP than it did, you know, and that 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 is continuing to decline. Uh, it means that China is now uh, much more powerful relatively than it was 30 years ago when it was really, you know, um, <laughs> there, none of the terms are good, whether it's global south or developing or third world, where it just wasn't on strategic parity in terms of power with the United States. And it still isn't, frankly, you know, they spend a lot less on their military. They have a lot fewer international bases. Um, but so what I really think it means for the most part is that the United States is going to um, be focused particularly um, not in the Middle East and more on East Asia. That That's what it practically means. I think you're going to see less and less interactions in the Middle East writ large um, for a diversity of reasons. Uh, and you might actually see, ironically, a European return to the Middle East because it's much more important to them than it is to Americans. Could you explain um, that, that a little bit more if you have, have time to or... What, yeah, why I mean, is I'm it not an expert on this, but my, my, my uh, understanding is due to energy, that you, 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 Europe is, is more concerned in terms of the energy that it gets from the Middle East, but people should double check that. I might be misremembering. Don't think I am, but I might be. Um, and I think the U.S. strategic community is really focused on maintaining regional hegemony in East Asia, which has long been a goal, you know, of the, you know first starting with the open door policies of the late 20th, uh, 19th century and then continuing through the post-World War II period, et cetera. When it comes to U.S. foreign policy going forward and also American hegemony, I mean, I've had people on that think we're nearing the end of the empire, people like Alfred McCoy and others who are not so sure of that. Where, where do you stand on where? I don't see an end. I don't see an end to the empire. Uh, I, I think you'd have to for that to happen for a real end of the empire, you'd need to basically get rid of the global basing system. Uh, you'd also have to end dollar hegemony, and neither of those seem to be even on the table. That's why I think it's a, it's a, it's a moment of hegemonic stabilization. And just one more time, could you explain what you mean by hegemonic stabilization? Just that the United States is basically getting rid of what we're, you know, conflicts that are not vital to its national security, you know, like in, like in uh, Afghanistan in particular. It's been out of Iraq for about a decade, um, a little more than a decade, and it just got out of Afghanistan. I think you're going to be see less of that, less nation building, oh, probably no nation building, um, but yeah. And that's more just a, is was that sort of an inevitability or it seems like there's material reasons for that rather than necessarily even ideological reasons. 
Yeah, I mean, there was just so low cost. I mean, even relatively speaking, even after the United States had all these disastrous interventions, how much of you or I felt that if you're in the United States, uh, almost none. Um, so they were really low cost, but even now uh, uh, in a unipolar moment, but now they're even, you know, now it's not worth it. So uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work and the work you're doing at uh, American Prestige? Well, sure. So you, you could subscribe. Um, to our podcast, American Prestige, we release one free episode a week and one, um, you know, pay for episode. It's oftentimes a series. We have an eight-part series on Iraq, not Iraq, sorry. We have an eight-part series on Vietnam. We've got a 10-part series on Afghanistan, and we're looking to do more series like that in the future. So yeah, check out American Prestige wherever you get podcasts. My Twitter is just at dbessner. Well, that wraps up this edition of Parallax Views. Be sure to check out Daniel Bessner's podcast, American Prestige. And of course, if you support the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. You can help me out by chipping in 1, 5, 10, 15, or if you really, really are feeling generous, $100 at my Patreon page. Your monthly donations are what helps keep this show going. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So you know we have to confront the problem. But no, basically. Basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.